Uh, a couple of quick things for everybody that's watching and listening online, and for those of you that are here this morning. Rock City Church is expanding. We own a, this whole shopping center here in Flower Bluff, outside of Corpus Christi. We're really in Corpus Christi, but if you're not from here, it'd kind of be on the outskirts. And uh, we are in the process of having our roof done on this shopping center. And in the last five years, we have managed to really save some good money. And in turn, we're going to be putting a majority of that towards the roof and financing over half of the roof. We have a matching fund of $30,000 that we've raised $6,000 towards, and we still need to raise about $24,000 if any of you would be willing to give towards that. Also, we've started doing the demolition. We purchased a shipping container so we could store things, which is behind the building. We're tearing down walls. We're gutting the facilities next to us so we can begin the process of building out. We won't be able to build out until the roof gets done because of how bad the roof is. A lot of the, the decking is rusted, and in turn, it's leaking really, really bad. We knew that when we bought the shopping center. We thought we had a couple years of life, and we've actually made it, believe it or not, five years to this day. This is, this is the five-year anniversary of when Rock City Church moved into this facility, believe it or not. We moved in. March 2nd, 2014, and uh, today's March 3rd, so it was yesterday, but close enough, and in five years, our church has really done a lot. We've grown a lot. We've touched a lot of lives. We're continuing to grow and expand, and so if you can help us in any way, we would greatly, greatly appreciate that. A few days ago, a very dear friend of mine passed away. He visited this church a lot. He would often sit right here in the front row. He helped us with a lot of our sound system and a lot of training, and he'd become a very close friend to so many of us here. I've known him for a long time. We both went to Oral Roberts University together and spent a lot of time in Tulsa way back in the day. And uh, Clinton Kennett passed away a few days ago. I loved him dearly, and I will most likely be going up to New York to officiate or be a part of the, the uh, memorial services. I don't know exactly when, but I'd like to ask us all to pray together for Clinton and his family, all right? Lord, we thank you so much for the impact that Clinton made on my life and even this church. I thank you for his friendship, and I thank you that he's with you now. Lord, I pray, and we pray together for his family, and we pray that all the memorial planning and all of the things that need to happen will come in line easily for them. Bring comfort to his mother and his brother and all of his extended family, all the people that loved him, all of his friends, and all the people that he touched uh, in such a profound way. Thank you for his life, and thank you that he knew you, and he's with you now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This morning, I want to begin my message by reminding you of a couple of things that I talked about last week. One of the things that I really tried to hit hard and help you understand is that people can be spiritually blind and not see what's happening in the spirit realm. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Jesus uh, uh, was at, the, at Jacob's well in Samaria and the Samaritan woman came, Jesus asked her for a drink and she said, who are you? Why are you asking me for a drink? And he said to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would actually ask me and I would give you living water. The word for no in the Greek in the New Testament in those particular two verses is the word ido and it means to be able to see. And what Jesus was really saying is that you're not, you're not seeing what's right before you. You're not seeing who's hanging on the cross and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Could they see in the natural with their natural eyes? Yes, they could. But they were not able to discern and see things spiritually because they were morally blind. And I hit hard the importance of unity in the church, and I hit hard the importance of us loving each other properly. Because if we're not loving each other properly and walking in unity, 1 John chapter 2 says that we're actually stumbling around in darkness. The darkness has blinded our eyes. Now, starting next week, I'll be starting a series titled Blind Mind. I'll be dealing and talking a lot about mental health. I'm not coming from it uh, from a scientific standpoint. I'm going to be coming to you from a spiritual biblical standpoint. And what I want to do is I want to help you to understand what the Bible has to say about mental health and about our mind. It has a lot to say. And for the last seven months, I've been preparing and thinking long and hard about this series, which will start next week. We're also going to be talking a lot about mental health issues. I want to just make the disclaimer right now that there's no shame if you go to psychiatrists or psychologists or if you're on medication. 
this isn't what this is about. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you need to get off your medications and, you know, you shouldn't be going to therapists. What I really believe is that the church should work in tandem with therapy that you would be receiving. So there's no shame, all right? Uh, you're not going to, it's not going to be one of those shame type of sermons or series. What we're really going to do is we're going to talk about what the Bible says for you to become healthy, renew your mind, understand the attacks of the enemy against your mind, and how he blinds us to not be able to live healthy, functional lives with one another, with ourselves, and especially with him. All right? So that'll start next week. But last week, I really hit this understanding that people can be morally blind, and they don't have a really good idea of what's taking place in the spirit realm. And so today, what I want to do is I want to show you another level or understanding of what's taking place in the spiritual atmosphere around us. There are a lot of things that are happening in the spiritual atmosphere around us, and I want you to know biblically what God says about those things and what the real battle is that we're facing. And so I'm going to start first by telling you about a city in Israel. And this particular city is located on the southwest base of Mount Hermon in, in the modern-day Golan Heights in Israel. And uh, this particular city, which is known as Banias, used to be called Panias. And this particular city in Jesus' day was called Caesarea Philippi. Now, we're going to read some scripture in a moment of Jesus showing up on the scene at Caesarea Philippi. But I want to give you some context about this particular region and about this particular town, which was inhabited all the way up until 1967. In 1967, it was deserted. And what you can see if you look at pictures, you can see what, what, what lies as remains of a temple, and you can see an open cave. Back in Jesus' day, and even through the 1800s, water flowed out of this cave. And this particular cave was called the Cave of Pan. The Cave of Pan. And right outside the cave was a temple that was dedicated to the mythological god or the deity of Pan. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Not only was Pan worshipped here, but there were a lot of other deities and a lot of other false gods, a lot of what are called nymph gods. There were several of them, and they were all erected in sculptures and statues, and this was a center of pagan and cult worship in Jesus' day. There's a lot of great history about this little area. This whole region was called Panio, which means it was a region dedicated to Pan. And how that happened was in the Hellenistic era, when you had Alexander the Great come and start conquering lands for about a thousand years, maybe you don't know your history so well, so I'll keep it real simple for you. The, 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 in the Greek conquest of Alexander the Great, this particular area was conquered, and then this particular spot was turned into a mythological worship center for the god Pan and others. Ultimately, the Roman, the Roman Empire would come, and this would fall under the headship or leadership of the Roman Empire in Israel. And that's what was happening when Jesus showed up on the scene. Giving you some context, and then I'll make it, make it very relatable and personable for you. So I'm going to teach everybody that's listening and those of you that are watching is something that I put into practice on a daily basis in my life because I've learned this and now I want to teach it to you, all right? So this particular city, Caesarea Philippi, was dedicated as a cult worship hub or a cult worship center known as Panias, and you can see the picture here. Over the course of time, they erected temples right at the base of this massive rock facade that were worship centers for false gods and false deities, and that's what was taking place in the very days of Jesus, all right? And so the other things that's important for you guys to know is that in the Old Testament, this particular region was mentioned as a, as a false idol worship spot known as Baal Gad. And the god was called the master luck god. It means that people would go there to find fortune. And ultimately, it would be associated with the god of Pan. And I'll explain that to you why 
in just a moment. So after the, over the course of time, there was an earthquake that shifted the rock and shifted the water from coming out of the temple. So if you go back a picture, and for those of you that are watching, I'm showing a few pictures online, uh, what happened was the water started to come out of the bottom of the plateau, and then the water dried up coming out of the cave. The water started to come out so slow over the course of time that it created these marshes which are filled with, in, with mosquitoes and infested with malaria and disease. That was way after Jesus' time. But I'm going to make a point on that to you in just a moment. Because some of us have slow running water and our lives are like marshes and filled with the spiritual sickness. And there's roots there that God wants to deal with and bring healing into your life. But the healing can't come until you get some revelation. So I want to help you to come to a place where you can get revelation. Because if people were blinded and couldn't see who Jesus was, in a, in a moment when Jesus shows up on the scene, he brings incredible revelation to the disciples' lives that transforms them. And that's what I believe is going to happen to you today. And so... If you don't know about the God Pan, let me tell you who the God Pan was. The, the God Pan was half He-Man and half goat. I'm not going to show a picture of it to you today. I may show it to you later in the series Blind Mind because we're going to dig into this even deeper. But this particular half goat, half man deity was known as a God of the wild, a God of the shepherds, and a God of the flocks. The God of nature and the mountain wilds, and it was also a God over music. And the particular music that this God was over was known as impromptu music back in the day, which really would mean spontaneous music. And for those of you that don't know, I used to follow the Grateful Dead around the country. I saw 45 Grateful Dead concerts. One of the things that I loved the most at Grateful Dead concerts was the spontaneous impromptu music that would go for hours, and what the, even the dead would say was that a fifth man would come on stage or a spirit would come and take over and take them to places that, were, that in their minds were supernatural or really incredible. And of course, if you were smoking pot or tripping acid, it was extra incredible. Yeah. Now, for us today, we are spirit-led in our worship, so do we have spontaneous prophetic worship? Yes, we do. Do we move off the music sheet and let the Holy Spirit lead us? Yes. But the Spirit leading us and who should always be leading and directing worship is the Holy Spirit. All right? And so this Spirit, this God of Pan, uh, the Pan God, was also a companion of what's known as nymphs. Now, you can research all this online. It was the God of the fields, the groves, the wooded glens, and often affiliated with sexual and spiritual possession and fertility. This God was also associated with new seasons, particularly the spring season or birth. And then also this God was known as a God of victory because the, the soldiers that would pray to Pan would basically ask Pan to instill fear or terror into the enemy. And it would often happen through what's known as woodland noises is what they called it. Basically, terrorizing and fearful sounds that would instill fear into the enemy's camp, and then the enemy would basically fall into confusion or terror or have what's known today as panic attacks. Panic attacks. Thank you guys for that. That was awesome. Man, yes, you're listening. Follow me. It's going to be very fascinating. Some of you are going to get such incredible healing today, too. So, so Pan would instill terror or fear into the enemy, and they would have what's known as panic attacks. Let me give you a definition of a panic attack, and what I want to say is some of you have been having panic attacks, a lot of anxiety and fear, and are being terrorized in the night. You're in the right place today, or you're listening to the right message. I'm preaching this message because we're going to directly assault what's been assaulting you. Some of you, your worst enemy has become yourself. And you're having a hard time living with yourself. And there are all kinds of reasons. And in the Blind Mind series, we'll talk about roots and reasons why we get to that place. 
But today what I want to do is I want to give you a big picture perspective of what we're really fighting and what we're really battling, okay? So to have a panic attack, I've only had one panic attack in my life. This panic attack came on me suddenly. In fact, a panic attack is defined as a sudden uncontrollable feeling of fear and anxiety that often causes wild and unthinkable behavior or puts you into a frenzy. Now, I know people that have had panic attacks as well. What often the descriptors are, my heart starts racing and I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. And then I can't think, I can't see, and I feel like I'm going to pass out. I start sweating, and sometimes something triggers it, and sometimes you don't know what triggers it. You could be doing something completely normal, and you feel like you're having a heart attack. But then you start to think, I'm going to die. And then you start to allow fear, worry, and anxiety to come in, and it compounds. And especially if you're living in a world of hurt and pain and unforgiveness and sin, or you're alone. Being alone in that state is one of the worst possible things because you feel like you're going to die alone or nobody can help you, nobody's going to be there for you, and suddenly you're just totally and completely immersed in a panic attack. Many people will, will call an ambulance or get rushed to the hospital only to find out they're perfectly fine. The doctor can't find anything wrong with them. And so panic attacks are very real. For me, I had gone into a movie theater in Tulsa, Oklahoma a long time ago, sat down in the movie, they started showing the previews, and I started to feel this overwhelming fear and dread. It was fear and dread. And I was like, man, I started to sweat on my brow. I had to get up. I went to the bathroom in the movie theater, and I sat on the toilet in the stall for 45 minutes. And I was totally freaked out. I mean, I was like, closed in. The walls closed in, and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't move. I couldn't call anybody. It was a horrible, horrible experience for me. Now, I know panic attacks are real, and fear and anxiety are real, because the most prescribed medications in the nation are anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications. And what's happening is Christians that should have the mind of Christ when you get born again are now being plagued with fear, worry, doubt, and disbelief. And so when we talk about the God of Pan, you have to understand what this spirit did. And then you have to understand what Jesus did because there's a whole section in the Bible specifically dedicated to this picture that you've been seeing and to where this terror was coming from. But I'm going to give you some even deeper history that you probably never knew. You guys ready? <clears throat> so this, this spirit of Pan that was worshipped in Caesarea Philippi had a girlfriend. It was basically a nymph god. There were several of them. One was called Echo, and another one was called like Syrinx. And what happened was, is the one, this is mythological teaching, the one decided, I don't want to be with you, Pan, anymore. So she goes to leave and turns herself into reeds. So Pan, in his anger, goes and cuts the reeds down and uses the reeds to make a pan flute. That's where the pan flute comes from. And the sounds of the pan flute would be seductive. The sounds of the pan flute would be like a pied piper. So if you often look at the pictures of the god of pan, what you would see are flutes and basically releasing a sound of music that's seductive to draw people to himself. Now, this little region of Banias, there was a woman, and this woman was incredibly, incredibly sick. In fact, she had an issue of blood that no doctor and no demon or, or you know, medicine god or shaman could heal. She had come from this town where there was a worship of false gods and idol, idolatry, and we only know her in the Bible a few chapters before what I'm about to read to you as the woman with the issue of blood. How many of you have heard the story? If you haven't heard the story, let me tell it to you. Jesus is walking through town and people are surrounding him, touching him and grabbing at him because the mindset from so many people was if I could just touch him, I would be healed. And there are many sections scripturally where it says people were, 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 uh, uh, flocking around him to try to get him to touch him because he was known also as a healer. 
And so the woman with the issue of blood who 12 years, no doctor, the Bible says no doctor could heal her. And of course, we already know where she came from. She wasn't getting any healing there. So she fought and pushed her way through the crowds, got down on her knees, and barely as Jesus was walking, touched the hem of his garment, and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? You're like, there's people everywhere around you. He goes, no, 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 no. I felt virtue leave out of me. Somebody was so desperate to finally get to the hem of my garment for the right reasons and could get hope nowhere else. And guess what? The woman with the issue of blood was healed. But you know where she came from. Now, let me tell you something else that's pretty profound. A few, cha- a few uh, chapters later, we're in Matthew. Now we're jumping to verse chapter 14. And in, in this particular chapter, we hear about how John the Baptist got beheaded. And let me tell you the story. So King Herod, no, we're not there yet. King Herod, or Herod the Great, I'm sorry, had sons. And one of the sons was named Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod the Tetrarch is having a party. And at the party, they're they're feasting on great food. He's over a region because after Herod the Great passed away, the the kingdom was broken up with his sons. And there were several of them. There was Herod Philip, and then there was Philip II. And if you start to go through their family tree, it's pretty confusing. But I'll keep it simple for you. They're having a party, and Herod, the Tetrarch, had basically committed adultery and taken the wife of his brother named Herodias. And John the Baptist called out Herod the Tetrarch, and so you know what Herod did? Put him in prison. And they're having a party. John the Baptist has prophesied against Herod the Tetrarch and Herodias because Herod the Tetrarch took his brother's wife, Herodias, and started having an adulterous affair in relation and then made her his wife. It was against the Mosaic law. It was profound. So here comes John the Baptist and prophesies against them, and he gets thrown in jail. Now there's a party. And at the party, out comes Herodias's daughter. Now, we know through research that her name was Salome, and she was beautiful, and she was young. And she comes out, they're all drinking, they're drunk, and she starts seductively dancing. You know where she was from? Caesarea Philippi. You know why? She was married to Philip II, which was another one. She actually had married, in a sense, her great uncle. And she was a niece. In fact, incest of that type in those days from distant relatives was often common. But what you had happening here was Philip II's wife was now dancing seductive from Caesarea Philippi. You'll start to connect the dots here in just a moment. I pray you catch it spiritually. She starts dancing seductive. What does Herod the Tetrarch say? to her. Anything you want. You are so beautiful. I'm so captivated by you. I'll give you whatever you want. And the scripture says, influenced by her mother, Herodias, what does she ask for? John the Baptist's head. Now, when Jesus shows up, you're going to have a whole nother dynamic of understanding. Because what would ultimately happen is that Jesus would walk a two-day walk. It's two days of a walk to the north of the Galilee, to the foothills of Mount Hermon, to this particular area where the woman of the issue of blood was, where Salome was from, who actually instigated the death of his best friend. I mean, this is like a soap opera. I'm just telling you. And when you start to connect the dots, you can see it because the perspective of what happens when Jesus goes there, you could almost think, what would you do when you went there? Because Jesus had a profound message and a profound lesson for us all to learn. Let's read about it. You guys ready? Let me tell you something else real quick about this spot. when When the Roman leaders had taken over the regions of Israel, the very first a Roman emperor 
to ever mint a coin with his own image on it was Philip II. Let's pull that picture up. Can, you can't even begin to fathom what the Jews of that day, the disdain and the hatred that they were thinking and feeling when now suddenly the oppressors of the Roman regime were now changing the commerce and now on the money, the money had pictures of the Roman emperors on it. Not only did it have the pictures of Roman emperors, uh, Herod the Great had, had erected a marble statue of himself and other Roman emperors. So when you showed up back at that hill back in that day, it was marble statues of Roman emperors. It was temples. It was a pagan cult center, but it was a place that had so much hatred towards the Roman oppression and towards the false gods because Israel was a theocracy. There was just so much hatred there. Now let's look at Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. Some are saying that you're Elijah. And even others are saying that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There has to come a clear point in all of our lives where it's not a matter of what other people say about Jesus, but you get the revelation for yourself of who he is and what you say about him. There is a lot of misguided information available to us about who Jesus is. And at the end of the day, even I as a shepherd and a pastor can bring information and point you to the revelation. But only you can get the revelation from the Father for yourself. Because when Jesus reveals, when the Father reveals to you who the Son is, it's life-changing. More podcasts, more books, listening to other people. Though I'm not against that because you're listening to me now, what has to happen more than anything else is that you're getting the wisdom and the revelation to change your life for yourself. And I want you to notice that Jesus said, who do you say I am? Because something profound happens when you speak. When you have a heart change, it comes out of your mouth. So the way you speak, the way that you talk to others, the way you type and write, the way you represent in every area of your life is a reflection of your heart. Jesus said, from the abundance of your heart, your mouth will talk. So if you're constantly listening to yourself and not getting the revelation from the Father, then you're going to believe narratives that aren't true. Let me make a profound statement for you. You ready? Not every voice in your head is the Lord's. Not every voice in your head is your own. But if you don't know how to decipher and distinguish the voices inside your head, you'll believe a lie. And that's why the importance of getting the revelation, that's why you must be born again. There's no way around it. Going to church doesn't get you born again. Even just reading your Bible doesn't get you born again. What gets you born again and puts the Spirit of God inside of you is when you can make the confession and turn from the ways that you were living and say, God, I want what you want, and I don't want to live the way that I've been living anymore. I want to be united together with you. Put your spirit, the thought that God, the creator of all universe, dwells inside of you, that should baffle you, especially with how messed up some of us are. And it goes to show how much God loves you. It goes to show that even in your process, he's living in you. Because if you think about it, really, it's like there's no way Jesus could live in me. I am a, I am a wreck. And he's like, no. I know you're a wreck. That's why I put my spirit inside of you. 
because now I'm going to help you not become a wreck anymore. See, people are spinning out all around us, but what I want to do is keep you from spinning out. And so Jesus asked Peter point blank, I don't want to know, I don't really care what everybody, the point wasn't what's everybody saying, I need to know about the gossip. What he really wanted to know and make the point was it's not what everybody else is saying, it's what do you say? What do you believe? Okay, that's my first point. The second point I want to make to you is that flesh and blood cannot bring the ultimate revelation for yourself. You can't do it in your own intellectual strength. The kingdom of God is not built on intellectual knowledge. It's not built on logic and reason. It doesn't mean we, we throw out prudence, or another word for prudence in the New Testament is to be wise. It doesn't mean we throw out wisdom and even being smart or intellectually smart. But Jesus said if you're intellectually smart, a wise man will dig deep and build his house on the rock. And so what happens is we, we understand that intellect is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. Let's say it together. Say, intellect is a terrible master, but it's a wonderful servant. So taking your mind and your logic and your reason and all that you think and bringing it into the submission of the headship of Christ is what he wants. Because a mind that is not under the headship of Christ is unbridled. So the voice that you're listening to and the narrative you're telling yourself is coming from who? Either yourself or an enemy. Got that? And so, you need to know that the revelation comes from the Father. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father grants it to them. There's a granting process where the Father draws you, you repent and say, Jesus, I'm ready to lay my life down. I want to know you and not stay the same. Everybody's invited. Do you know that? And everybody can be granted when we make the decision to not live, that we don't want to live the same. Now, there's no shame in your failures because he's in the overcoming. If you said yes and you meant it and you're here, which you are, and you're staying in process, he's in the overcoming and I'll fight with you for the rest of my life. I have to teach you fatherly truths I have to teach you biblical standards, and sometimes we need correction, which that's what last week was. And some of you are like, oh, that was so hard. You just beat me up. No. Because I love you as a father, there has to be correction and even discipline to understand the truth of God's word. So you've got to know that you can't do this without the Holy Spirit. There's no behavior modification in the kingdom of God. So Remember, they were blinded. Jesus on the cross for them saying, no, no, not what they do. There was moral blindness, right? So what happens here? Jesus makes this profound statement. He says, ha, you got it. But you didn't get it from flesh and blood. You got it by the Spirit of God. And that's what I want you to have full time, all the time, every day, being Spirit-led in your life. Now, let's put this into perspective. While facing the rock and the idol worship, the hatred, the possible vengeance of John the Baptist's best friend, Jesus brings the disciples to face the very thing that was wreaking havoc of fear and terror, demonic influence, hatred, idolatry. He brings them to that place. And while they're looking at it, he asks the question. Because God will always bring you back to face what has tormented you your whole life. Because he's in the overcoming. And some of you don't want to face it. You just want to shove, put it under the rug or not deal with it. And when you get born again, the blood of Christ washes you and makes you new. All things are made new. But what Jesus does is he takes your your past and turns it into a testimony that's why i stand up like oh man guys yeah i used to do this as you're like oh my god but jesus changed me 
I used to be this. It's called a testimony. I'm testifying of overcoming the testing and the trials in my life. And I'm, it's no longer me that lives. I'm sharing now a story of who I used to be, but am no longer, so you can get hope. So your problems today become your ministry tomorrow. So Jesus would take the disciples to face the cave of Pan, the temple of Pan, and all the false deities, and all the hatred of the Roman oppression, all the money system, the center of commerce in that region, and he would have them face it. Now think about this. What must have been happening in the spirit realm? For those of you that are really super spiritual and in spiritual warfare, you're going to really like this. Because Jesus would walk days to get to this place that he knew had a lot of history. His best friend's murder originated from that place. The seduction of Herodias' daughter originated from that place. The woman that couldn't be healed, when he healed her, he probably knew and thought to himself, I know where you're from, and I'm going to go visit you. I'm going to come to your hometown. I'm going to set the captives free. And check this out. He takes the disciples, and here's what they didn't do. They didn't start warfaring in tongues. They didn't start marching around anointing everything with oil. They didn't go crazy in their spiritual warfare, dancing and shouting, though I'm not opposed to those things sometimes. I want you to know that. But I'm making a deeper point for you today. Jesus would come up to that temple and that rock, standing the facade, and he'd look at his disciples and say, who do you say I am? Well, you're Christ, the Messiah. Come again? Let's just say it a little bit louder. You are Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he's speaking it into the atmosphere. Because let me tell you what changes nations. Let me tell you what changes your family and your community. Let me tell you what transforms and tears down principalities. One neighbor, one house, one family at a time. Because the enemy inhabits and possesses people to take regions. And now Jesus would take his disciples and, and have them face the place of greatest fear. And what would he have them do? Declare who Jesus is. So, so in the night seasons of my life, in those moments at the theater, in those moments when you feel like you're going to die and have a heart attack, when the panic attack or anxiety, or fear, and worries knocking at your door, Jesus says, make a de declaration. Declare who I am. Stand on who I am. Believe the promises of God that I have for your life. Now, I'm going to take it even further for you. But one of the points I wanted to make, make for you is that God will always bring you back to face the one thing that maybe was your greatest fear. You know why? Because he's in the overcoming. He's in the overcoming. And now he would speak in the atmosphere so that the spiritual principalities and wickedness of that area would hear. Jesus would drive a nail in the devil's head and all those demonic false gods of wickedness in high places, he would defeat them by getting you to declare who he is. You gotta see this. The disciples would out loud make the declaration. Who do people say that I am? Well, I heard Bill Johnson once say this, or I read in this book, or I saw at this conference, or I heard this great preacher, or Todd White once said, no, it's not a matter of what somebody else said. It's a matter of who you say, because you cannot overcome the strongholds of the enemy wreaking havoc in your life until you get the revelation and make the declaration. You see, the revelation makes a declaration. Let's say it together. The revelation makes a declaration. And so Jesus would draw, would draw the battle lines in the atmosphere by saying out loud who he is, and he would get his followers to do it. If we would just start declaring who Jesus is in the night season, if you would just start to declare it over this region, if you would declare it over your children and be unmovable. The challenge is, is many of us are getting knocked down over and over and over again. So Jesus would take the revelation a step further. 
he'd say, blessed are you because you didn't get this figured out even from necessarily what your friends or what everybody else said. You got it for yourself. And then he makes a profound statement. Let's pull up the next verse. Here's the profound statement. Are you guys ready for this? Jesus would say to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Let me break it down for you. He was saying, number one, the rock of revelation of who I am, you're going to build your life on. The ultimate rock is the rock of our strength. Jesus is the rock of your strength. And so what he was saying was, you think that's a big mountain? Pa, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think that mountain in front of you is big? All you need is a mustard seed of faith. And it's faith that comes from me inside of you. What he would say is, number one, I'm a bigger rock than that rock. You think that fear and terror and pain and idolatry, all that stuff you're seeing, you got to try to put yourself in that day. And the only way I can bring it to you today is anxiety and fear and worry and doubt and disbelief that you may be battling. And if you're battling those things and panic attacks and worry and doubt and strife and division, you have come to the right place. You got to try to understand he is surrounded by demonic influence. And I, you could probably walk up to that mountain and cut the air with demonic influence. Have you ever felt such a dark presence around you? That's probably what that was like. And I could just see the disciples' hair standing on end. And Jesus says, come a little closer. Come a little closer to that thing that's wreaking havoc in my kingdom. Now let's make a declaration. Who do you say that I am? Because the devil's a liar. And the devil's out to give, give uh, noises in the wilderness that bring terror. Lies to your head. I'm already preaching my Blind Mind series right now. I'm just telling you, he speaks lies and then you grab hold of them and now fear and seduction. And you know what many people do in that time? They turn to your old music. Don't think for one second, most of the secular music that's coming out today and the rap that a lot of people are listening to is not seductive and will, is preaching lies right into your ear and you don't even know it. You don't see what's happening in the spirit realm, but I do. And you know what I often see when people are spinning out of control with addiction and fear and flesh is raging and lies and deception? I see a master puppeteer pulling the strings, little left, little right, up and down. And you can't see it, but it's the seductive nature of the, of the enemy that comes into people's lives. It's demonic influence at its finest. So Jesus would take them back to that place. He would even go face the place where he could have gone and said, ha, I know Salome is from here, and she, had, she killed my best friend. Down you go, mountain. Shakarabha, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to tear you down. Now, ultimately, an earthquake would cause that place to become full of sickness and disdain. But what I'm explaining to you is how Jesus goes about it. Confess who I am and say it out loud, people. Don't be silent. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are my Savior and the Messiah. Jesus, you're the living one. And confess it out loud. And face those things. Stop running. Stop hiding. You have the power of God to turn against it. You're not defined by the shame and the failures and the mistakes of who you were. But most people spinning out in their head are living in the past of failures and shame and mistakes, aren't they? Or when people spin out, it's a lack of true trust and belief and confession. That's what I believe. I believe that. And I believe Jesus had the answer. Jesus would say, on this rock, I'll build my church. He's the rock. The second thing he'd say is, who's living inside of you? Let's say this together. Say, I have a full-grown Jesus living inside of me. You don't have a little seven-pound baby Jesus inside of you. you. When you get born again, you get all of him. You just have to get the understanding of who he is. So now what he's saying is, you will become my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail. This isn't just a defensive posture. Sometimes you have to stand our ground against an enemy, but what he was really saying is the gates of hell 
they can't withstand or prevail against the onslaught of what my kingdom's going to bring. Here's, let me paraphrase it for you. You're hurt, broken, sick, angry, depressed, addicted. I'm going to come and pull you out of it. I will rescue you out of it. Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. But now he says, you're my hands and feet. And he says, you get in there and you pull somebody up out. You pull somebody out of that darkness right now. You declare who they are instead of, you know, hem-hawing around and being nice and religious. You prophesy into their life, their identity, so they could get the revelation for who they are. So then he says the next thing is the church will become a rock. It's a unified front. Hence, rock city. Because you may, let me just tell you, you may be able to, to get one person, but two is much harder. Ten is much harder. Fifty is much harder. A hundred is much harder. Now we become a force to be reckoned with. Now we become an army where we're fighting together instead of against each other. And the only way the enemy can try to stop what's happening here is if we get divided against each other because a house divided against itself can't stand. You guys want to see this on an even greater level of understanding? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 starts by saying this. Finally, of all the things I got to say to you, make sure you get this. Stay strong in the power of the Lord. Uh, stay strong in the Lord and the power of his might. What this means is he is supreme, he is all-powerful, and he has dominion. I'll just paraphrase it for you. He's your prince of peace. He's your knight in shining armor. He's the one that's coming on a white horse, not the man down the way or the sixth lover, not another person you got to be held in their arms. The one that brings the most strength to you and power to you and dominion to your life is the Lord. This is a powerful scripture right here. Your strength does not come in flesh and blood, not even in your own self. My strength comes from him. So then he says in verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. Now, when Paul's writing this, he's in a dungeon in prison. And at the gate of, at the door of the dungeon is a Roman soldier in regalia with a spear in his hand. Every day. Probably watched him even put it on and take it off sometimes. And he learned about every piece of the armor. And he says, ha, huh, I got a great spiritual analogy for you. Put on the full armor of God. The armor of God really should be called the armor of understanding. What it means is every piece has an understanding to it. If you could understand the sword of the spirit, if you could understand the word of God, if you could understand the belt of truth, if you could understand the shoes for the readiness of the preparation of the gospel of peace, if you could understand the helmet of salvation that protects your mind. It goes where does a helmet go? On your head. So every one of these pieces mentioned in Ephesians 6.10, designed in the context of spiritual warfare, is here's how you really fight. Get understanding. Because when you know who you are, when you know who he is, when you learn how to fight with weapons that aren't carnal, you'll tear down every demonic stronghold that comes against you in vain imagination that you're thinking inside your head. But sadly, most Christians don't pay the price to read their Bible. Only 17% of Christians on average are reading their Bible. But you don't know what to do and you don't have understanding. And I get it. Sometimes you need medication. Sometimes you need a pill to help you get to where you got to be. Sometimes you need therapy. But don't use that and not use this. Because let me show you the next verse. The next verse says that I'm in, a, I'm in a wrestling match. For those of you that don't know, I grew up wrestling. I was a state champion wrestler. Do you know what wrestling is? It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, let's pull up the scripture. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Notice it says, for we. So there's two dynamics. Number one, you have got to learn how to wrestle on your own. You can't, you can pray for me, but when the demons try to come in the night and the lies try to come and the fears try to come, I have to have the understanding of how to wrestle. Now, I know a few things about wrestling. This word for wrestling in the Greek means this. It means to cast off, to throw away, or to throw out, and then it means to pin down with my hand on the opponent's neck to the mat. So now, instead of me being pinned down to the mat by the enemy, 
Now, instead of the enemy having me by my neck, I'm holding him down by his neck. Because, see, the enemy's already been defeated. And if you could understand that he's already been put under your feet, you'll walk in so much more freedom. But some of you don't understand that. And that's why sometimes you need help. Last service, there was a woman here crying the whole time I was preaching. I was, knew I was talking to her in so many ways. At the end, she came up for prayer, right in the prayer line, right before y'all walked in. And as we were praying for her, she started manifesting a demon and screaming at the top of her lungs. Ah! Screaming, roaring at the top of her lungs. And I jumped out and come out right now. Come out right now. And she confessed Jesus with the power of the blood and screamed at the top of her lungs as that enemy was reeking and, and, and wriggling her and causing her to contort. And on, right here on the floor as your kids are walking in. But you know what? She was getting free. And Jesus would bust up demons in public at times. We don't do it all the time. But sometimes it just has to happen. And you walk in and, whoa, this church is weird. What's that screeching, screaming noise? But yet if you read your Bible, you'd understand that many times demons would come out screaming. Philip did it in Samaria. Jesus did it. Now I'm not a demon hunter and trying to make that happen. But if it starts happening in your life, we're going to tell it to come out. But we're first going to make sure you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've got to get an understanding of what God says with the power and authority because check this out. He would say to Peter, on this rock I'll build my house, my church. The gates of hell can't prevail. And then he said this. He says, I'm going to give you the keys. Let's say this together. He says, I have the keys. The keys of what? The kingdom of heaven are given to the sons and daughters. It's called spiritual authority. The devil doesn't want you to know the authority that you have. You have authority. And you may have given it up, but the devil can only have what you give him. So now you take back your authority and recognize I have the key. And then Jesus goes on to say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth and loose in heaven will be loosed. You have to understand the power of binding and loosening. To bind means to, to tie up. And to loose means to cut the ties or to break bondage. So what Jesus was saying, let's pull that scripture up, can you? Jesus would say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. This is Matthew 16, verse 19. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual wickedness in high places. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to show it to you. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 12, Ephesians 6, 12. He says, who are we wrestling against? I'm in a wrestling match. Now check this out. I've said, shared this before, I'll say it again. If I can get you to wrestle right and become a good wrestler and you partner up with me, we become a much greater force to be reckoned with. So yes, is there an element where you have to learn to wrestle on your own? Yes, but God ultimately wants us wrestling as a tribe and as a family. Because now... We've had five or six children at Driscoll Hospital in the last couple months. There is an assault on this family. Now, I'm not making such a big deal about it because I'm not so freaked out about it. But I'm also calling it for what it is. Our kids are under attack. The enemy's working hard to spin them out or to get them sick or to kill, steal, and destroy. So he says, look, who are you wrestling against? Not each other. And now let me make sure you understand. If you try to break into my house in the middle of the night, there's going to be some flesh and blood fighting. They're going to have a surprise waiting for them. There are very real people that become possessed by an enemy that hate you. And I do believe there are times to protect and defend and even for the military things that are happening around the world. And I support our military. But the main thing is, is instead of trying to kill and destroy flesh and blood, we understand who our real enemy is. So now I'm really wanting you to get born again. And I really want you to get saved. Not everybody's going to get saved, but I'm still going to try. And I'm going to protect myself the way that I feel the Holy Spirit leads me to protect myself. I'm not being arrogant or pompous about it. But you need to understand, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, who, you know what flesh and blood also it could be? Yourself. But how many of you feel like you're wrestling yourself? How you look, what you have, your friends, comparison mode. Social media is, the, the, in my opinion, the top culprit 
of people having to wrestle themselves. Comparison mode, looking at everybody else's life, falling into the world standards of how you look, what you have, what you possess, where you're at. Look, I, there's a lot of things that the Lord just says, don't even look at that and stop comparing yourself to that. I can't compare myself to anybody else. I'm uniquely me. But I can compare spiritual to spiritual. And so he says, you're not wrestling against really ultimately yourself. Who are you fighting? Who's the, real, who's the one we're really fighting? Spiritual wickedness, principalities, darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness. And where are they? In heavenly places. Now, I know this may be above and beyond for some of you, but it's in the Bible. And I'm, I, some people have the gift to see in the spirit what's going on in the atmosphere. I don't, but I can sense it because I look at the fruit and I know the root. Some people can see as a seer angels and demons and things like that. And those people need to be affirmed and trained to see and act right and be covered properly. But I know what the Bible says is happening and I know what this scripture says is happening. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, it says, take up the whole armor of God that you would be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So as a wrestler, I have always a position, my stance. And my stance is very secure. My stance against my opponent is if they try to throw me off or get me off my balance, you can't. And I'm constantly withstanding. I'm pushing the enemy back and trying to get them in a slip up so I could take them down or throw a headlock. The enemy slips up all the time. You're the one that doesn't need to slip up. And so you stand in position so that I can withstand, and I, having done all, let's everybody say having done all, I can hold my ground and stand against it. That's what it really means is I'm holding my ground. Let's say it, I'm holding my ground. And so in a wrestling match, what the understanding is is you've done all to stand. And my question to you, and I need you to be honest with yourself, is have I done all? Have you done all to hear God's voice? What's really priority in your life? Do you really dig deep to find the gold, to get on the rock? Do you really, really, because I understand we need therapy, and I understand that some of you may need medications, but if you're not having done all, you don't get to negate the having done all. So if you're getting your hiney kicked by the enemy, my question is, have you done all? And if your answer is, I don't even know what to do, we have an awesome family and community to help you get to the place to do all. And the Bible gives you all the answers to do all. And I'll leave you with this scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. The only thing that inherits the kingdom of God is those that are born again with the spirit of God dwelling inside of you and the incorruptible things or the corruptible things in your life become incorrupted by the blood and the power of God. And you may say, well, I'm born again. I still have some corruption. Well, that's why the Holy Spirit's living inside of you to regenerate you and make you like him. But you got to do all and dig deep. Some say, I don't have to do anything. Well, okay. Then why are so many Christians divorcing, spinning out, sleeping around, doing the things that they do? Hey, I don't have to do anything. Really? What God says is put off the old man. I'm going to teach this on Ephesians 4. Put off the old man and be taught by Christ. Let the old man put on the new man. Right? And so I want you to see that flesh and blood can't enter, inherit the kingdom. And corruption, because corruption can't inherit incorruption. And then Jesus would go on to say in John 6, 56, a statement that would cause a bunch of followers to leave him. He'd say this. He'd say, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and abide in me, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The next verse says, and a bunch of disciples hike, took, a, took a hike. Because the real believers eat the bread of life, 
and they drink of the fountain of healing and redemption that was shed on the cross. It's the blood of Jesus, which actually drives back demonic strongholds in your life. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb. So having done all is right here. Every day, this isn't, for those of you that maybe don't read your Bible much or don't know, I'm not, Jesus isn't saying he's a cannibal. <laughs> Let's try to bring it way down for you right now. He's not Hannibal the cannibal, all right? He's Jesus the Messiah. And what he's saying is, I'm the bread of life. The water I give you, you'll never thirst again. The blood that I shed will heal you and redeem you and fight for you against a very real enemy. It'll transform your mind. So eat of me, a drink of me. And there's one, two little words, three words here. Abide in me. This isn't a nice religion. We're not doing our nice Sunday morning duty today. We're going to get healed. We're going to get transformed. And you're going to take your story of addiction and pain and brokenness. I don't care how many times you've been married. I don't care how many times you, how many years you were in prison. Not, none of it faces me. I don't care what you were or what you did. What I'm saying to you is God's going to turn your story around. And now he's going to take your failures and mistakes and broken paths and turn it into a testimony. And I'll leave you with this last scripture. I didn't give it to them, but I'm going to just say it to you. It's John 3, 6. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes tonight, comes in the night and says to Jesus, we know that you've come from God because nobody could do what you do. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't, enter, you can't see. Same word for no, you can't see. And then John, or, uh, Nicodemus says, well, I don't understand. How can a man go back in his mother's womb? In John 3, 6, look at what he says. That which is born of flesh is but that which is born of the capital S Holy Spirit is spirit. So what are you? Everybody say, I'm spirit. I'm spirit. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand. We're going to transform this region by waking up hearts and minds and getting people to confess who Jesus is in the face of their fear. And I know some of you are like, man, I can't go all in because if I go all in, I'm gonna, I don't know for sure that I'm done sinning. Now, I know I hit a few nails on the head with that one. I think I'm still going clubbing next week. I can't accept Jesus. I don't want to give up my hoochie mama on the side. I am not giving my life to Jesus. Come on, guys. That was funny. I mean, seriously, you can laugh a little bit. It's all right. Just self-deprecate. But as I've said so many times before, you don't get all cleaned up before you take a shower. You jump in dirty. And you know what will happen is if you really genuinely don't want to keep clubbing and hooking up on the side and you want to be transformed and you want to overcome fear and shame and all the failures of your past and become who you're supposed to become, Jesus comes and fills you and then has you face it. So now what will happen is you'll go to that club, and the alcohol won't do anything, and God will open your eyes to see the spiritual realm, and you go, whoa. Because you know what revelation is? It's seeing for the first time what you've been looking at the whole time. You've been staring and listening for years, and now you finally go, oh, my God. I see those demons and that master puppeteer. I'm out of here. And that seductive boy or girl you thought was so nice and really loved you, you go, wait a minute. You are a, f I'll just, well, we'll just leave that alone. All right. Come on, guys. You got to face it. Jesus will take you to the place to face what would often be considered your worst fears. You know how many times I tell people, I'm like, okay, listen. There's some roots of shame here and, a, and either abuse or whatever. And God wants to cut it and he wants to show you where he was and bring healing. And they say, no way. I can't go back to that. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to see that. And they want to put it to the side. But they're full of triggers and constantly giving in to the same patterns. You can do it. And we'll help you. That's why we're here. And I need you to get healthy. Listen, I need you. I need you. All your broken paths, all your failures, all your mess-ups, all your screw-ups, all your jail time, all your blow-ups, I need you.
because God has created you for something great, and it's in your story he gets the glory. Let's say it together. In my story, God gets the glory. And now you're going to go rescue people and pull them out. We're on a mission, aren't we? And I'm sorry for some of the things you guys are facing now. I know some of you are living paycheck to paycheck, aren't sure what's going to happen next week. You're facing incredible opposition. Here's what I want you to do. Every single thing you're facing, I want you to picture yourself with Jesus standing in front of the cave of Pan. And that cave, that spirit wants to put terror in you. And you know what it wants to get you to do? Run. But Jesus says, no, that's okay. I'm standing right here with you. Who do you say I am? You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. We can do it together because we wrestle together. Let's all stand.